Welcome to the Intentionist Podcast, where we explore the interplay between intuition, spiritual health, and everything in between. I'm your host, Amy Schreiber. And I'm Hilary Zwallen. Our intention is to create a dialogue that inspires you to consciously forge your path with curiosity and compassion for life and its mysteries. everyone. Today we have a fantastic episode with breathwork therapist Audrey O'Brien of The Breathing Co., who shares her fascinating story of how moving from the city to a bus in the mountains with her husband and six kids transformed her family and how kundalini breathing practices healed her body, mind, and marriage. In their conversation, Audrey and Hillary explore ways to build sustainable new lifestyle habits, the concept of labels and disidentifying with the diagnosis, Audrey's 90-minute morning kundalini practice, and doing breathwork with children. I really loved hearing about Audrey's experiences because I think they illustrate so well the human capacity for healing and resilience, and this idea that we can mindfully choose what to create from the rubble of life when it implodes, as it inevitably does. So I know you guys are going to love it. Before we dive into the interview, a little bit about Audrey. She is a kundalini-based breathwork and meditation therapist and lifestyle curation coach, living minimal and rural in Woodland, Utah, with her lover of 21 years and their six kids. You can follow her wild journey through trauma recovery, disease, and lifestyle curation on Instagram at The Breathing Co. Also check out her website, which is also thebreathingco.com. She has a passion for writing and leading others through the rugged wilderness of the ego and pain body to find sustainable healing and happiness. Enjoy the episode. Audrey, you had a thriving floral business, a big house in the city, and six great kids, but you also had a crumbling marriage and a rare neuromuscular disease. And so I'm so excited to hear your story of how radical minimalism, and by that I mean living in a bus with your family in a remote mountain town, and discovering how to breathe through kundalini yoga practices really healed your body and your marriage while simultaneously changing how you approached parenting and viewed family. So let's start with this concept that we discussed before we before we came on air here, which was the slow nature of cultivating a sustainable, healthy home for the family. Let's do talk about that. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to share my story. And thanks for being here. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think that cultivation began really with what I term womb curation of sort of what happens after things fall apart when there's sort of cataclysmic experiences that occur and we we sort of had our own ground zero happen in our life and the evaluation of the rubble (laughs) reveals so much (laughs) And, and from there, we could kind of see what needed to be ejected from our womb, so to speak. And we started shedding organically as we sort of started cleaning up. We, we were shedding people and places and experiences and things that we didn't want in our life. And we could see contributed to 
this rupture and we started bringing in what was working slowly as we identified it and discovered it and, you know, went about sort of creating this womb for us to begin to heal in. And it was drastic out of necessity. It literally felt as though all of those drastic measures were required for us to survive as a couple and a family and individually. Why do you feel like that was the case? Like, first of all, I think it's great that you were saying like, we had to evaluate the rubble, you know, kind of after the explosion yeah, of, yeah. or the implosion or whatever happened with our families, because we all go through these phases in our lives, right? Where, where things don't turn out like we thought or things fall apart. And we either choose to examine the rubble or we don't. And then yeah. things happen from there. Yeah, I think we both wanted it to work when we saw things from a, a very awake place where we could see the trauma for all that it was. We wanted to fix it, to take a look, to find something better. We determined that we weren't surviving at all, really. And to continue forward would require that examination in order to ever feel like we were living. So how did that conversation go? Like here you are, and like we talked about the sustainability and yeah. it's often used in the context of environment, but and, and this time was kind of where we see nature as a mirror for humanity. So, so let's talk a little bit about your shift from this 6,000 square foot house in the city. Like you said, you knew you needed a change to living into a, a remote mountain town in a bus. Like, how did that go? Like, Hey, I have an idea. Let's sell everything and move to a bus and settle into a simpler life. Like, how did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, the road to perceived success is a box checking infrastructure that defers to um, the mind instead of the soul. And it lacks the truth of the individual potential. And when we were really awake, we could really see that that wasn't what we wanted. As I kind of mentioned before, we weren't living. And so we, when we were evaluating that rubble and like the stuff we were shedding or wanted to shed, we began to feel a bit claustrophobic. Like there were people and things and experiences we did not, that were irritating and agitating and we did not want in this raw new sort of womb-like phase and so we started to think creatively like how do we 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 didn't just have this conversation where we're like okay complete lifestyle change it happened fairly quick if you if I look back at it over you know three to six months total that we made these drastic changes but those conversations happened daily where we were like, yeah, I'm feeling kind of irritated and agitated about this influence or this experience. And it doesn't feel healthy or like a conducive lifestyle to a a thriving type experience. So what needs to go? And, And eventually that came down to our home and our possessions and the city we were living in. And we, my husband um, inherited this piece of land when he was a, a child. When his grandfather died, he, it was willed to my husband. And we've recreated on this land our, our whole lives. In fact, the bus that's on this land, his grandfather brought up there and gutted and turned into sort of his family 
uh, RV. He was so ahead of his time. This was in the 60s. So this is early 60s, late 50s, quite some time ago. And we have done different things to to modify the bus and to make it more usable and whatnot over the, the 21 years we've been married. But we've spent a lot of time here. We knew that it was a place of where we could heal because there was a sacred quality to it always. And so it was a, it was a piece of land that you were familiar with and that you knew had that healing. I mean, I get that. I mean, I feel like I've been in places, we have a family ranch like that where it's like, I know if I go there, I will be healed. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Go on a hike somewhere in the mountains today. I will feel better about things, you know? So, so it, it felt really convenient. So it was really about a call back to that location. It's why we chose that. We we knew we wanted we had to shake things up pretty drastically, and it you know we owned it. It was it was quite convenient, and in a lot of ways, it checked all the boxes that were our boxes, and what we were sort of determining our womb needed to be like, and what success what would drive us towards a successful marriage and family life and so we just said well let's try it for a year and see what happens that's great and so then how did the year move along it was pretty interesting so we do we do have the six kids and we did it right at a time where our oldest adopted son was leaving to uh, embark on a professional career he had just graduated from college and was really heading out of the nest. And then the next oldest, she didn't want to live in the bus with us. So she bought herself a real big, nice tent and set up a literal home inside this tent. She had like a mattress and her she brought her dresser and all, all this stuff and ran extension cords out to her tent and spent the better part of the time we were there in her tent, eventually it was too cold for her to do so. But that's sort of how she approached it. The other kids were in the bus with us. And there was there were some tantrums. Like when you live in an addicted state of lifestyle and you change things that drastically and, and it's hard, difficult to understand for an underdeveloped mind there, there were some tantrums for sure. It was, it was difficult for a while. I actually thought I would have the hardest time just because I was sort of responsible for our home lifestyle and that it would be really difficult for me to problem solve and to create fluid adjustments and, and figure out how to sort of live this life. And, and it ended up being a beautiful experience for me. I, I didn't struggle at all. Everyone else kind of flipped out and I remained calm and really rooted and grounded in the earth and really immersed in the loveliness of the challenge and the experience that we were having. So for me, it was great. I actually cried when we left the bus. I think I was the only person who cried. Everyone else was like, get me to running water. (laughs) Yes, yes. So how did you do stuff like shower and like, did you guys have to go to the gym or? Yeah. So we, we have an above ground water tank. So we did have some sense of running water. We would have to fill it every once in a while. And my husband is the, the ultimate boy scout or MacGyver. And he's, he owns a construction company and he's 
smart and builds things and really, really intelligent in the engineering type department. And so he had kind of MacGyvered up a shower in our outhouse and made our outhouse look like it was a real bathroom, even though it wasn't. (laughs) And um, so we, that's how we showered. We, and then we had just our sink, one sink for all the needs in the, in the kitchen area of our little bus. So we came, that water came from the above ground water source. We did, I did all of my laundry at a laundry mat. We had to boil our water to do dishes or anything like that. The shower had a, kind of a little wall electrical water heater that the water would run through, but the showers were quick. There was never very much hot water and they didn't happen regularly like where we're used to showering at least a couple times a week at the very minimum we went you know a little further out my kids are all athletes so they were showering a lot at practices and at places where they were training and things like that but I was just showering every couple days and a quick quick brisk experience in the outhouse so then what happened with your like how did the change what what was the change so you guys went to a simpler place in life what did you see blossoming from this experience with your family what was different so many things our relationships changed how we worked things out with one another our time spent outside and with the earth was greater than our time spent inside and that transformed everybody in multiple layers and multiple bodies it it affected every layer of our beings and our relationships and at times it was hard like if conflict arises and we can't there's not a lot of space you either go out and get in the woods or you face each other and that that was a blessing and a curse at times but it changed how we were communicating uh, the time that we were spending with our kids and the presence in which we all were engaging in our family lifestyle drastically changed. We really limited technology at the time and and the amount of time the outside worldly influences came in. And I watched everyone just transform how they felt about themselves. What was their perceived idea of love of success of monetary and financial type perspectives and experiences we had to work super hard to stay warm and to get dishes done and to get laundry done and and to be with one another and to work in that kind of environment it taught us a lot about how to work together as a family and as a team and how to work hard, period, and then be reap the rewards of that and how different it is to feel a sense of accomplishment with what you've achieved, even in the simple task of getting dishes done after you've boiled seven pots of water or what have you. It, it just shook all of it up. We had just interviewed Remington Donovan last week and we were talking about the Buddhist concept of chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. And just that like when you're doing these simple tasks, there's something about being in the present moment that it calls you into the present. You're not really allowed to be in your head because the water is boiling and you burn you and you have to do the dishes. And so 
you can't be somewhere else. You have to be right there. <laughs> yeah, it's meditative. It's very, very meditative. And we took a lot of those inconveniences, so to speak, into the, the next stepping stone of the home and womb that we're in because of how nourishing they are. That's amazing. So part of this big shift to a simpler way of life had to do with your illness. Can you set the stage for what was going on in your life physically? Yeah. So I was, ex I've never been healthy. I'll start with that. Backstory is I've, I mean, from birth, I've always struggled a bit with my immune system and health and various issues. And I just found myself as my marriage was falling apart and our businesses were falling apart and our lives really were very, very disconnected that my nervous system was very amped up. It was full of anxiety and depression and in f constant fight or flight mode. And I was responding physically. I started struggling to find words. I started having what I can only describe as hundreds of Charlie horses in my muscles every single day. You could watch it. We would record it. It would look like an alien heartbeat, like pulsing, and it would just be gripping my muscles. And I, mm. I weakened and was really unable to do a lot of daily tasks. And we chased sort of a diagnosis and looking for what's wrong with me as I declined and front of my family's eyes and became very, very sick in a short period of time, ultimately receiving a neuromuscular disease diagnosis in the Parkinson's family, something called basal ganglia dystonia, which I don't, I don't real, I'm not real big on labels. Labels are kind of not my thing. I don't really own that diagnosis today. Let's talk about that for a second. So this idea, you get this diagnosis, and I think this is something that a lot of listeners can relate to because, you know, at some point in our lives, we either encounter someone who's very sick or we become sick, um, whether it's with MS or cancer or celiac disease, or even if it's something like an, an allergy, you know, it can be sure. something that totally, it, it can be, become part of your identity when you get that diagnosis. So how did you start to shed the idea of I am not my diagnosis? I think that happened after I had been sick for quite a while and we had been chasing chasing a diagnosis and I had in in the process of getting a diagnosis there was a lot of distrust that occurred with especially with western medicine and a lot of learning and growing. I'm kind of a researcher at heart, kind of a, a research nerd. And I had been doing a lot of studying and, and reading and looking and seeking answers. And I was really, really disenchanted. And as much as the diagnosis made sense, the other part of me could see how illness and disease is becoming such a huge epidemic on, you know, difficult to diagnose diseases and sleep disorders and mental disorders and all sorts of health crises are occurring right now in the world and in our culture because of thousands of years of an, an inherited junk. And then it's nature that we've inherited. And then it's the nurture of the lifestyles we're living now in the world we're living in and, and the messages that we receive. And I just didn't believe I couldn't 
reprogram that some way, somehow that I just had to find, figure out how to do that. And that I, I was pretty dedicated from the get go that I wasn't going to leave these people this soon, this young in my life, these children and, and this, this man, my lover who I had worked really hard to, to heal with. And so I just, I just shed it pretty, pretty quickly after I received the diagnosis, I started pursuing, no, what, what do I have to do to fix this? Let's really fix this. Let's not medicate it. Let's not find a way to have a high quality of life while I die. Let's really heal this. And, and that came from a very intuitive, natural, organic place, but I didn't know what it would look like. It it was a step-by-step journey of, okay, I think this is intuitively what's next and, and trying that out and building, building myself into my own physician. So then how did you get from, I'm so sick, I can barely move. If that's kind of what it was, it sounded like lots of those Charlie horses to where you are now. And was, were those things happening when you were in the 6,000 square foot house in the city and did it, or was it once you were in the mountains? Those things were happening when we were in the big house in the city. We moved out about three months into my personal and individual pursuit of healing and about six months after my diagnosis and a couple years, you know, from the onset of the actual disease, because it took some time to even figure out really what was happening. Right both for me from, from a Western medicine standpoint and from an Eastern medicine standpoint, it took quite some time to figure out. But I think the the big change came for me when I, I had been practicing Kundalini for a while and Kundalini is really heavy in, in pranayama or breath work and prana work. And, and just for, just really quick for our listeners, could you just explain yeah. briefly what Kundalini yoga is if for someone that may have never heard of the term before. Right. Which I think a lot of people, people don't haven't heard of what uh, Kundalini is. So it's a great question, but you know, I really think Kundalini is the, the yoga of coming, coming to self and then learn connecting with self then self acceptance after that. And then self love and, intuitively connecting really intimately with the body and, and learning to use the brilliance of the intelligence that we are as human beings with the light of a soul inside of it. And it's a complex yoga. It's, it's definitely complex and, and difficult to learn and quite deep. And isn't it very breathwork oriented? I mean, there's just a lot of, aren't there a lot of mantras and breathing and that might be different than if you were to walk into a, a typical like vinyasa flow class or something, yeah. you know, uh, even a ashtanga. There's, sure. you spend a lot of time doing the meditative breathwork. Yeah, so much breathwork. It's very, very heavy in the breathwork department. And I was studying Kundalini. I wanted to learn about it. And the more I learned about it, the more I read, the more I researched, the more classes I went to, the more data I collected, the more I I was drawn to this breathwork piece of there's something here. Like, why is breathwork so important? What's going on that this is so paramount? And 
So I started pursuing some research and education away from the Kundalini world and into even Western medicine and oxygen and other breathwork uh, writings and um, research and learning about how oxygen works in the physical body and how it works in the nervous system. And, and then going back to Kundalini and Eastern medicine and learning how it works in the pranic body and the energetic body. And it made so much sense to me. It really resonated. It was like, I found all the technology I have, I knew to be truth. I, I find it finally surfaced. I had manifested what I was seeking and so I kiboshed all my treatment. I threw away all the medication I was taking. I, I cleared the table. I went back to my doctor and said, what will happen to me if I stop doing all these things and start pursuing, filling my body, you know, with, with quality oxygen, what will happen? And he, of course, laughed at me. But I've still walked out of that office with the courage to flip a switch for a time and give it at least a few months of really investing into some oxygen type treatment and therapy to see what would happen. And it only took three weeks before I knew without a doubt I was getting better. Wow. And what kind of oxygen treatments? Was this hyperbaric chamber or is this um, like ozone or what was your, or was it all just breathing? It was all breath work. So I have not, I did not do ozone stuff in the beginning of my treatment. I was primarily doing hyperbaric treatments three times, three to four times a week for 90 minutes. And then I was absolutely engaging in a, a prana breath work healing session every day uh, in my own home. And, and throughout the day, I have built a lot of breath work into my lifestyle, into my daily function for both me and my family. So, and was that, was that kind of a new thing once you got to the mountains? Was this, was that part of the kind of the, the shift or were you practicing some of that while you were in the city? I was practicing some of that while I was in the city. I really grounded myself in it and began a daily practice when we moved to the mountains. Prior to that, I would engage in kundalini or some other sort of guided meditation or, or yogic-like exercise maybe once or twice a week. But my daily practice didn't occur until we made this big lifestyle shift. And it happened outside I would get up in the in the blue hour in the early morning hour and I had a little spot that I made out in the earth a, a ways from our little bus cabin and and that's where I would practice for 90 minutes every day. Wow. And you would go sit in in the weather whether it's cold or whatever for 90 minutes. There were days that my my the my muscles were really reactive to cold and they still are and not so much now as they were then. So if it was too cold, I would practice inside the bus, but I'd have to get up a little bit earlier even to be able to do that in quiet sort of still um, space because it was a bus and my family would start getting up and getting ready for school and work and all of those things. And so they were getting ready while I was out meditating if it was warm enough. So it it was... It was dependent, but I certainly was willing to bundle up to go out and ha be outside and have that practice. Wow. So it's the, the combination of the nature and then, and then 90 minutes. So what would you do for 90 minutes? 
Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So my, my 90 minute practice, my 90 minute daily practice, which still occurs today, I'm pretty committed to that for the most part. There's, of course, times where I'm sick or, uh, you know, extenuating circumstances make it really difficult. But uh, it always starts with a little bit of calling my energy back and coming into myself and then some movement, doing a little bit of yoga that feels good and really stretching out my spine. I do a lot of cat cow and just some pretty basic yogic movements that then turns into sitting down and tuning in with my intention for the practice and just coming into a more meditative and prayerful like state. And at that point, I've been in practice for probably 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. And then I move on to a pretty serious breathwork practice segmented up into usually three to seven minute individual practices or kriyas or mantras or you know you could there's a lot of things you could label that with I don't like labels I think I've mentioned that so Mm -hmm. um, it's you know just different exercises different different breathwork exercises and then I would move into a, a really challenging meditation for usually 11 to 18 minutes and what does a challenging meditation look like versus sure. you know, the it's, mantras? It's holding a body mudra for the duration of the 11 to 18 minutes or doing something that feels simple but is really difficult to hold right. to gravity over an extended period of time and moving through the resistance that the body and the mind says we you know we cannot do and sort of breaking through that wall and into a more universal space where intelligence really, where you can really connect to self, where it's really clear, like, this is not mind, this is self, I've conquered the mind, and it takes time to work up to, you just have to keep progressing as close to you move to the point in which you can no longer withstand it. And you build up that resistance and you can break through that at different points and different meditations. Kundalini is full of hundreds of meditations. So a lot of them are really the basis of that. All the breath work and all the meditations are teaching sort of the soul over the mind. Um, One of my favorite quotes is, and I won't quote it exactly, but it's more of just an idea of the mind is a, a terrible master, but a beautiful servant. And it's really creating that transformation of of turning into a servant and taking back the control of the body and the mind. So a challenge is doing a really challenging body mudra with a mantra and usually a, a breath work on top of it. It's very layered. It requires it's kind of like patting your head and rubbing your tummy right. you know, different. It, it requires a lot of focus. It's like a mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, energetically challenging meditation. And then after that, I'd move into more of like a restful meditation or a nidra. Mm. And then when I would uh, emerge up from the nidra, I would spend some and time in really, I guess, what could be determined or labeled as prayer and then wrap up my practice and bask sort of in the light that's created through that experience. In the blissful state. Yeah. <laughs> when you're done. 
Yeah, I know. Even just hearing you talk about it, I'm like, oh, that sounds so amazing. It feels so damn good. Like the days I can't get to it or I don't get to it first thing in the morning and something happens that interferes with that and things do. I have six kids and a husband and oh, it's so hard. I can tell the light, my light is so much dimmer when I don't engage in my morning practice on some level, I I have to do something or I can't be connected to self. The mind, I see the mind start to take over pretty quickly. The reprogramming isn't real grooved. It takes time. Right. Well, I think that happens often, right? We get this amazing insight or we get this nugget of wisdom and we think, oh my gosh. And then it's the integration part that takes a long yeah. time. And it's yeah. really, I think it does require the discipline. And, and I think that's interesting that you bring up Kundalini Yoga as a tool really to use to integrate that concept of, of self versus mind. And I mean, that's really, I mean, here with the intentionists, we were always talking about the different various tools as you were talking about connecting and even I think even just sitting for 18 minutes is is a challenge you know for most people for me I mean I I can usually meditate for 20 no problem but beyond that it you know if I'm not doing a yoga you know if I'm not doing an asana set or something like that then it's you know I don't think I could do 90 minutes I'm not I'm not to that place yet but (laughs) but I mean just hearing you talk about it it made me think of how we just we pick up this energetic debris in our energy field Mm -hmm. and and it just happens on the daily like just by living our lives you know we we our feelings get hurt. We aren't our best selves. We might be reactive to something. And we're, you know, we carry around that frequency with us. If we, and if we aren't conscious about shedding that, then you can see how that can start it to, accumulates. it accumulates. It can create emotional, mental, physical sickness. So thank you for sharing that. I think that was, it's a really, uh, paints a very clear picture of that practice and, and of what you did to start. And you, so you started seeing change in your own physical body uh, in your own obviously your emotional uh, mental spiritual with your family as well yeah in a matter a quick amount of time I started seeing drastic changes in all bodies all of my bodies and knew I was onto something and it was they're subtle but I I still could very clearly sense their power and knew that things were changing, alchemizing inside of my body physically and in and, and every energetic and cosmic way you could imagine. That's great. So your your business or your Instagram handle right now is The Breathing Co. So what yeah. kind of tips would you offer to our listeners about how to set up a personal practice? Well, I think it's important to first get an education and figure out I mean, for me, I I do, I am a researcher. I, I need to know why before I do something and different people have different accountability. This is where Gretchen Rubin and one of my favorite writers comes in and you, where you can learn about what do you need to be held accountable to a transformative change or implementation of something you, you feel called to. And for me, it's, I think education is so crucial knowing why matters. Um, so maybe not to the extent that I <laughs> pursue that, but getting a basic education, I think is the first step. And then it's not feeling like you have to do this crazy long breath work or meditation practice, even on the daily, but it's looking at your lifestyle and seeing, well, where can I 
implement some small changes in the spaces, maybe while you're sitting at stoplights or for just three minutes when you're going to bed or getting up for the day or where can you, you know, borrow a minute here or there, those that there is really the place to begin experimenting with breath work and meditation in a way that will result in some sustainability long term will show you the fruits of that experience and that faith in that, hey, let's try this out and see if this works for me. And then that builds, you become so quickly motivated that you then begin your own practice pretty intuitively and easily. And that obviously isn't going to look like 90 minutes right off the bat. But like you said, I like how you say three minutes in the morning, three minutes in the evening, you know, something yeah. simple is a great, that's, is that's really doable. Like we all have three minutes. Yeah, we all have three minutes. And the reality of it is we live in a very addicted culture to not just substances, but to our lifestyles. And there's a lot of anxiety that crops up in people when they're asked to sit and breathe for three minutes, even just for three minutes. And you you want to be careful to not create this whole nervous system haywire situation. You have to introduce your nervous system and change your lifestyle in a sort of courtship type way that's very gradual if the relationship is going to stick and addiction is going to be shed. Okay, I, this is I think is a really great time to segue into parenting and kids for a minute because you've said um, you've got six kids and the olders are all elite, elite athletes. Um, yes. You had mentioned to me before one plays professional football, one is an elite level swimmer, one is an elite level wrestler. And you were just talking about this idea of shedding addiction. And I know when I talk to my friends, and I know this is a fear of my own about screen time with kids yeah. and and short attention spans and this like ability, like my kids, they, you know, they freak out if they don't get, we try to limit their device time, but if they don't get it at all, they lose it. And I'm like, this is a problem. Yeah. So, so can you talk a little bit about um, how to do breath work with children and what that can look like, especially with children who are all at different ages? I mean, you've got some adult kids, you've got little kids. Can you can you kind of help us with that? Yeah, you know, I think you integrate it into your lifestyle, like I mentioned, you would do kind of in the beginning. And so I integrate it into this is what breath work we do for three minutes before we leave for school. And this is the one that we do when we go to bed and it becomes part of their routine. And it takes a minute for them to grip onto it, but it's like creating any implementing anything else into a routine into your family. And that is how I introduced breath work initially to them versus more of a formalized breathwork session, so to speak, and teaching them, oh, you're stressed out. That Those are the great pockets and moments. Oh, you're feeling this. Well, why don't we take a few minutes to breathe in this way and see how that affects how you're thinking and feeling about what experience you're having and taking the time to be present with them and then practice the breath work with them. I also have to be okay with just being like the quirky, quacky, hippie mom that they sometimes make fun of and roll their eyes at. But that that's a given, no matter who, right. what kind of mom you are. Exactly. It doesn't even matter. So it's that. And then, you know, monkey see, monkey do in that if I respect my practice and they see me 
in my devotion to my practice and what it does for me as I transform in front of their eyes, it becomes a little bit of a no brainer. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's a good point in, in just modeling. You know, I remember when my kids were little, we used to do when they were littler, we used to just do we do like a one minute meditation and I would have them hold a little crystal and they were little enough that, you know, they'd be looking and kind of falling around. But they were young enough that they were like, oh, mom, we mom's in here. We're getting an extra minute to do that. And then, you know, we did that for a while and then it kind of fell off. And then yeah. the other night I tried to, I tried to do it again and they were just like, they're not a, having it. well, yeah, they're yeah. Like nine and six now. And so I remember my nine-year-old was kind of crying or something. There was some, he was upset about something and it was probably had to do with a video game or not getting to play a video game. And I was like, you need to go outside and ground yourself. <laughs> and I was like, take off your shoes and ground yourself. And he like looked at me and he was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah, in, yeah. In, like all sincerity is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I had to laugh because I was yeah. like, no, you're going to go put your feet in the grass and you're going to just come out of this like hysteria of whatever Fortnite induced, you know, sure. mania is going on right now. And, you know, we're just going to come back to our bodies. And, you know, we all walked out there and we kind of laughed about it because he was like, what are you doing? This is weird, mom. And we're and, earthing. And, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, this is what grounding is, child. Listen to yes. me. I'm your mother. Yes. And so then, we, yeah, so then we came back inside and he was fine. I mean, I feel like kids, uh, unlike adults, I think for me, I it takes a lot longer now for me to institute oh, yeah. change. I can do it and yeah. I can see the change where children, gosh, it's really quick. They can, they can ground it themselves is. quickly, you know? It is. Yeah. And I think really it's become a devotion to the life, a lifestyle of talking about those things. The lifestyle we're living is really conducive to a lot of natural healing and natural approach to life experiences as a family. And just continual talk about that. It's work. But mm. so so is the whole other way, the the way that we were living. That what that takes energy, more energy actually. It's all energetic work. It's learning how to work with the energetic field and create the womb and the home that you want to be nourished in. And mm that this is where that work element we talked about at the beginning really comes in. You have to stoke the fire, both energetically and here in my home. Like literally that's how we hate our house. <laughs> but like, right. you, you, you have to do, you have to be committed and devoted to the work of we're doing breath work. We're doing meditation. We're talking about grounding. We're connecting to the earth. We're detaching from the world in these ways we're connecting in these ways or communicating in these ways and and sort of setting your family lifestyle based on what really is healthy for for your family that's great so what do you do when your kids aren't paying attention if you're trying to no. do breath work? Yes. breath work yeah okay this is a question i get asked all the time and in many respects, I ignore them, like, and out of respect, actually, too. So out of respect for my practice, and respect for them and the age and development they're at, if they aren't being inappropriate for their age and or disrespectful to me, if they need to leave the practice or change what they're doing, or 
they they get a bit distracting. I, I hold space for that and make it uh, make our, our home and our womb and my practice a safe place for them to be in or how else can I teach them? And if they're being disrespectful to me or to the practice or to someone else in the room, that is sort of where I have to come out of my practice and engage with them. And, and initially I try and engage with them in a way that still respects my practice, the intention of my practice and who I'm progressing towards being, you know, more aligned with my soul self instead of my mind self and not responding out of ego or being reactive, but just responding with respect to the whole situation that doesn't always happen, but I'm getting better and better at it. I growl for sure, especially when I'm overwhelmed or overstimulated or haven't received the nourishment that I need. I, when people when people are in pain, they get reactive, and I react just like every other human being because I'm in pain sometimes. So I find too now that my kids are a little older, I'm trying to without without making them responsible for my emotional state because you know I don't think that's great yeah. but I, but also to recognize that like I'm a human and your yeah. your actions when you behave this way like it's you know like the other day I was like imagine what it would feel like if you are constantly having to referee fights all the time and my older son who gets it he was like yeah that would be hard and I'm like hello, like, welcome to my world. Yes. Um, so I think there's a good point. Like, I love that it's like being age appropriate and then calling attention to we're all human here. You're not responsible for my emotions, but let's all hold space for each other here, yeah, teaching children yeah. to be empathetic of, of everyone in the family. Um, before we wrap up here, I wanted to just touch base on what services you offer and, um, and how people can find you. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I do work with groups. I like to work with groups in a retreat or workshop like setting just simply because people in those settings are a little bit more ready and prepared to and open to growing through that type of an experience of breath work and meditation. I also work with a lot of couples. That's something I'm really passionate about. I've, I've transformed my own marriage into something I never imagined was obtainable and into something that's just really choreographed and intuitive with one another. And I, I have a really strong desire to sort of heal the family in the world by helping people heal how they are in relationship with one another. So I love working with client uh, couples. I do some private one-to-one clients as well in my office or online. Um, I have a handful of both that are here in Utah and are elsewhere. And then I teach classes in Park City a couple of times a month. Well, and I'd like to speak to going to one of your group sessions where it was like on this, we got to sit on this beautiful bridge over this gorgeous stream in this gorgeous yeah. meadow. And we did, yeah. it was like an hour and a half of Kundalini breathing and bowls and it was such a great gathering yeah. so oh my gosh I hope I hope for people who are local in Utah or if people that want to travel and are on vacation in Utah will connect with you how can they get in touch with you what what is your website and um Instagram and everything 
Yeah. So the breedingco.com, super easy. You can find really everything about all my services there and classes that are coming up and connect with me there. Or you can find me on Facebook and Insta as at the breathing co. So just really simple, the breathing co. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much, Audrey. We will um, make sure to link to that as well on our, uh, on our page where we post the episode and, and also through our Instagram at intentionists. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining me and it's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. I'm so grateful for your time and for sharing my message. Before we part, we'd like to say thanks for listening, and we hope you'll connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We would love to hear from you and appreciate all feedback, shares, and likes. To learn more and subscribe to our newsletter, visit intentionists.com. And no matter where you are or what you're creating, we send you love and invite you to breathe and begin. See you next week.